So as we've been in this series, we've been trying to uh, do something, it's a pretty complicated deal, we've been trying to understand God, we've been trying to understand more of who he is and what he's like, and the truth is, this side of heaven, we'll never fully comprehend God or get God, but the truth is also this, we can understand more and more of him each day if we pursue him, and so that's what we've been doing in this series, we've been trying to understand who God is, what he's like, and, and the things he does, and we've learned so far in this series that God's love is as vast as the ocean, and we've learned that God is so big that he can, he's described as being able to put the waters of the ocean into jars. And the thing that we learned that was really kind of mind-blowing was this, is that this big God values little me. And that's where our identity comes from. And then the past two weeks, we've been exploring this beautiful, amazing, powerful thing called God's justice. And it's described as rolling like a mighty river. And the amazing thing is he does that through people. People who will act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God. And today what I want to do is this. I want to look at another characteristic of water that I think also reveals something that's true about God. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? I mean, most of us are actually thirsty all the time. None of us really probably drink as much water as we should. And we're in a constant state of dehydration without even knowing it. But I'm talking about like real desperate Thirst. Have you ever been in that place? If maybe you've gone for a hike and you didn't take enough water, you went camping, didn't take water with you, or maybe you're out on a mountain bike ride and your camelback busted because you flipped over on your mountain bike and you didn't have enough water for the rest of the trip. If you've ever been in that place where you're just desperate for water, it becomes top priority, right? I love the show Man vs. Wild and when Bear Grylls gets dumped off in the middle of some unknown uncharted place, it's always the same thing. He always pursues water first. Why is that? It's because the human body can't go without water for more than about three days, and that's not very long. You, you would not be over-exaggerating to say that water equals life. That's why there always seems to be studies going on about is there water on different planets, because if there's water on different planets, then maybe there's a possibility for life, because water is what makes it possible for there to be life on earth, and water is what sustains life on earth. See, water is not just important. Water is vital. So it's really no surprise at all when you open up the Bible and find God compared to water over and over and over again. And today we're going to look at some of those places. If you got your Bibles, go to the book of Psalms chapter 42. It's right in the middle, kind of open that up. If not, pull out your program, the scripture's in there. It'll also be on the screens. And what we're going to look at in Psalm 42 is this, a, a poem or a song that was written by a young worship leader who found himself in a desperate situation. And we're not really sure what that situation was. Some people have speculated that perhaps uh, maybe he had been exiled or kidnapped or taken to another country. But again, we're not really sure what that was. All we know is he finds himself in a dry and empty place. And I bet as we read through this scripture that you and I will be able to identify with what he says. Check this out, Psalm 42, verse one. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now stop right there, okay? Because a few weeks ago, I told you that one of the most misrepresented, misquoted verses in the Bible is that whole, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength verse, right? This one also, I think, would make the list. And here's why, okay? I used to work in a Christian bookstore years ago. I don't know why they hired me, but I lasted for a month or so. And so I, I worked in this Christian bookstore and I gotta be honest with you, I'm thankful for amazon.com for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is I don't ever have to walk in a Christian bookstore again, all right? Because I, I have this thing where I just can't stand and the store I worked in had a lot of this stuff, stuff that I call Jesus junk. 
cheesy knickknacks with stupid sayings on them and things like that or misquoted Bible verses or, or t-shirts. Like we had this t-shirt in our store back then uh, that instead of saying Abercrombie and Fitch, it said a crumb of bread and fish. And I just always want to go, okay, so has it ever occurred to you that it's never happened where somebody's been wearing that shirt, walking down the street, someone stopped and read it and fell on their knees and worshiped Jesus? Like that's not the way it works. It's actually kind of repulsive to people. And so we had all those kinds of things in our store. And so the worst, one of the worst of them was we had these paintings all over the wall. And one of them was of this mighty, majestic deer with these huge antlers by this, by this rushing stream. And below it had the verse, as the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. And I promise you that if the original writer of that poem, of that song were to see that painting, he would be sick. Because there couldn't be more wrong with that, with that picture. That's not at all what he had in mind. If the original songwriter had, had actually painted a picture to go with the song that he was writing, he would have painted a picture of a, of a scrawny deer struggling to find water in the midst of a desert place. Because that word pant means to intensely long for or to desperately need, and that's how this man describes his need for God. Have you ever been in that place? Desperate for God to show up, but it seems like, it feels like God's not there, like God's not providing. And that's how this guy feels. And then he goes on, look at verse two. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? See, he refers to God here as God is often referred to in the Bible as the living God. And today we're gonna see God compared to living water over and over again. Why the emphasis on the word living? Because living means capable, Vital, moving, able, powerful, as opposed to stagnant and dead. And that's the kind of water that this man is thirsting for. And as someone who used to take part in leading worship in the temple, he's desperate to once again, as he says, meet with God, to be in that place where he once was. And then he goes on, look at verse three. My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? He's saying this, he's saying the only consistent thing in my life right now is a steady diet of pain and suffering. And on top of that, he has to deal with people who are mocking him in the midst of his circumstances saying things like, where is your God? I thought the God you worshiped was like living and capable and powerful and he wanted to take care of you, but looks like that's not the case. See, the big question this guy is wrestling with is this. He's going, man, I am, I'm trying to follow you, God, and I'm desperate for you to show up in my life, and I'm desperate for you to lead me and comfort me, and yet I feel, God, like you've abandoned me. So how do you reconcile your thirst with God with the fact that it feels like God's left you behind? Anybody ever wrestled with that question? And if I'm just being really honest with you today, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest, I've been really frustrated with God this week. I've been really frustrated with God on behalf of a good friend of mine who over the course of the past couple of years that I've known him, I've watched him totally transform his life. I mean, the person he was compared to the person he is is just night and day. As he's been following Jesus, he's been making mistakes, but he owns up to his mistakes. And it seems like as he's been pursuing Jesus, he can't catch a break. And as his friend and as his pastor, I tell him the same things I've been telling you guys for the past five years around here, that you can't tie your faith to your circumstances, that God is not guaranteeing your success on your terms. And I believe that and that's true and that's in the Bible, but I still found myself this week just being mad. Just going, come on, God, are you kidding me? Would you please show up in this guy's life? He's following hard after you and where are you at? And that's exactly what this guy's working through in this song. Look at this, verse four. 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. He does two things here that I think I can learn a lot from. Maybe you can too. Number one, he's pouring out his soul. He's emptying himself of everything that's pent up within him. He's not harboring it. He's not hanging on to it. He's pouring it out. And I gotta be honest with you, I'm terrible at this. You can ask my wife sometime and she'll tell you, oh yeah, Scott's really bad at sharing his feelings. It's just not my deal. It's, it's not what I do, okay? I live, in, I live inside my own head and then she's the one who has to deal with the fallout of that most of the time, whether it's my anger or my moodiness or my temper or my stone cold silence or whatever it is because I'm living up here and I won't share what's going on in here. So here's this guy, he's not doing that. He's being a better example. He's pouring out his soul. And as he pours out his soul, he does something else that's really important for us to learn from. He remembers. He remembers and he's thankful for the good things God has already done in his life. And I don't know about you, but when I find myself in difficult circumstances, I often fail to remember and be thankful. I often fail to thank God for the good, but I'm so quick to blame him for the bad. Maybe it's just me. So this guy remembers the good, and then he does something really, really interesting. Some of you can probably relate to it. He starts to talk to himself. So here he goes. Look at this, verse five. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I'll remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of the Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Here's what he's doing. We've talked about this before. This is really important. He is, in essence, leading his own heart. In other words, we've talked about this. Some of the worst advice you could ever follow would be this. I'll just follow your heart. Because our hearts, the Bible teaches us, are deceitful above all things. Our hearts are messed up, our hearts are broken, our hearts are not always drawn to what's best, our hearts are contaminated by sin, our hearts are often drawn to things that ultimately will not satisfy us, our hearts are often drawn to things that will not nourish us or take care of us. In fact, our hearts are often drawn towards things that will destroy us and the people that matter most to us. And so he's leading his heart, he's commanding his heart to hope. Hope moves beyond our doubts, and we all have doubts, but hope helps us move out of that place. See, hope is a place of waiting for God to act. Hope is a place that moves you beyond despair. And in verse six, he said, my soul is downcast within me, therefore. And a lot of us, we would we'd fill in that blank by saying, my soul's downcast within me, therefore, I'm gonna drink myself to sleep tonight. My soul is downcast within me, therefore, I'm gonna go with those people and do that stuff that I always do whenever I get down. My soul is downcast within me, therefore, I'm gonna hold God accountable for the circumstances of my life and demand that he change them, and until he does, I'm gonna withhold my worship from him. But that's not what this young man does. Instead, he remembers. He remembers, he says, from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, and from Mount Mazar, and that doesn't mean anything to us, but what it meant in his context was this. The area he's describing is the source of the Jordan River. And it's rich and it's beautiful and it's fertile and there's waterfalls and water is is living and moving and it's rejuvenating and replenishing there. And again, as he remembers that, he puts his hope in God. But at the same time, he's still honest about what he's currently feeling. Look at this, verse seven. Deep calls the deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. That phrase, deep calls to deep, means the depth of who God is is resounding in the depths of of this man's heart. And he has this deep sense that he's wrapped up in something wild and untamable and uncontrollable and overwhelming and it's called the will of God. See, God is not tame. 
I love that quote from the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. The, the question goes out in reference to the God figure known as Aslan the lion. Is he safe? The answer comes back, no, 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 no. He is not safe, but he is good. And God's not safe. And it's certainly not outside the norm for God to take you somewhere you don't want to go, to put you, put you in a place that you never would have put yourself. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And he is not interested in leading us on some pleasant little meandering rafting trip that we can navigate under our own strength. He's far more interested in taking us through a wild and unsafe rapid that we could only survive with him as our guide. He is not safe, but he is good. And it's his goodness that this man talks about next. Look at verse eight. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I think he's reflecting on the way God led his people out of slavery like we talked about back in that ransom series. By day, he directed them with his presence with a cloud and at night with his presence in a fire. And he says this as well, it's really interesting. He says, at night his song is with me. Makes me think of another scripture a man named Zephaniah wrote many years later who found himself in some terrible circumstances of his own when he said this, the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save He'll take great delight in you. He'll quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. My kids love for my wife to sing to them before they go to sleep. They never ask me to do that for some reason. I don't know, there's something reassuring and calming about her voice that allows them to rest and to sleep and to feel secure. At night, his song is with you. He'll quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. He's the God of your life. Life flows from him. Life is sustained by him. And just as this songwriter begins to rest in that truth and rest in that knowledge, he does what we all do. He swings from what he knows to be true about God on a pendulum over to what he feels right now in his circumstances. And look at verse nine. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? I want you to notice, though, that this man starts by referring to God as his rock. He's, in essence, going, there's nowhere else for me to turn. There's nowhere else for me to go. There's no one else to build my life on. And yet, at the same time, he's demanding from God to explain himself. Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forgotten me? Don't you love the fact that the Bible's so real? I do. I, I love the fact that here we are looking at somebody's, basically like their prayer journal from almost 3,000 years ago, and it's almost like reading our own words back to us. It's almost like looking in the mirror. He's praying the same prayers that you and I pray. And he swings on the same pendulum that you and I swing on. And as he swings on that pendulum, again, he lands in the middle between what he knows to be true and what he feels to be true in the middle with this thing called hope. Look at verse 11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He directs his heart once again to put hope in his Savior and to praise him. And even though his circumstances don't feel very hopeful, I want you to notice something. This song started out with a thirsty man in a desperate situation, and this song ends with a thirsty man in a desperate situation. There's no happy ending. There's no cute bow on the end of the story. It's just life. Sound like anybody else's life? But what this man does, he does correctly. He directs his thirst to God even when his circumstances don't change. And what happens when you do that? 
Another really famous songwriter named David said it this way in Psalm 36. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And look at this. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. I love that phrase, your justice is like the great deep. It literally translates, God, what your judgments, what you decide to do, the things you do, they're as deep as the ocean. What does that mean? It means this, most of what God does, we can't understand. We can understand a little bit of it, but most of it, we can't. It's beyond us. It's beyond our ability to map it out or explore it. And I'll I'll be honest, the older I get, the more I study the Bible, the longer I've been in ministry, the more comfortable I've become with this simple truth. God is God. And because he's God, he can do what he wants. But because he's God, I also trust that if he does something, he's got a purpose for it, even if I can't see it in my circumstances. Kind of like I can understand some of the ocean. Most of it, I can't. So, I should try to trust that God does want good for me. And not only does he want good for me, he wants me to delight in him. He refers to himself as the river of delights. And God is the fountain of life. And the problem is, is that we direct our thirst in every direction but him. We're desperately thirsty, but we often don't direct our thirst to God. Years ago, I used to be a children's pastor and I would spend several weeks in the summer at this, this camp where a bunch of elementary kids would come and it was, it was uh, in central Kentucky down by the Kentucky River in a valley and it was the most humid place God has ever created. I mean, it was unbelievable how hot it was down there. And so you would be there for weeks on end down in the summer and uh, it, it always just boggled my mind. The camp served two drinks at lunch and at dinner, Mountain Dew and Kool-Aid. And they wondered why in the world we were sending like hundreds of kids home with stomach aches every day. And it was like, man, if you would just give them water, they'd be fine. And I think that describes the way a lot of us live. We're really, really thirsty, but we're drinking all the wrong stuff. It's always been that way. It's always been our tendency. God himself describes it this way in Jeremiah 2.13. He says this about us. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, they've walked away from me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns or wells, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, we're like deer panting in the desert, but we walk away from the water that God provides and we start digging in the sand to try to find our own drink. And we try to find joy and we try to find delight and we try to find satisfaction on our own terms in our own way. And then we get mad at God when our circumstances don't line up with what we want them to be. And we demand that he remove the circumstances instead of joining him in the oasis that he provides in the midst of our circumstances and Jesus encountered people like that on a daily basis Jesus encountered men trying to find satisfaction in their money religious people trying to find satisfaction in their ritual soldiers trying to find satisfaction in their power parents trying to find ultimate satisfaction in their kids politicians trying to find joy and satisfaction in their status and in their fame women trying to find satisfaction in men In fact, one day he finds himself, Jesus does, leaning by a well, talking with a Samaritan woman. If you were here last week, you know that Jewish people and Samaritans did not speak to one another. They hated each other. He's having this conversation with this woman and he knows how desperately thirsty she is. She's so desperately thirsty that that she's had five husbands and now she's living with a sixth man. 
In other words, she's digging her own wells and coming up empty every time. She's desperate. And Jesus said all this to her while leaning on a well. Look at this. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water, he's pointing to the well now, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He looks at her and he goes, you're so, so thirsty and you're drinking from the wrong well. It's what people do. Jesus knew her story really well. Jesus knows our story really well. Jesus knew the story of everybody that he walked around with very well. He knew how empty and dry most of the people in his country felt. They were a great nation that was now a laughing stock. They're occupied by Rome. Their promised land had been pillaged repeatedly time and time again. And, and they, all they had was to hang on to was remembering their past hope and hope or their past security and fame. And now they just hold on to the future, hoping that it'll get better because the present didn't have anything for them to hold on to. They were dry and they were thirsty. And so Jesus one day, in the midst of that context, goes to this, this feast in Jerusalem. It was one of the major feasts known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was really interesting because every day at this feast, the high priest would go up to the temple and he would grab this golden pitcher and then he would walk from the temple down to the pool of Siloam and he would fill it up with water and then he would go back to the temple. And that was a daily reminder of how God had provided water for their people in the desert when they left Egypt. But on the last and greatest day of this feast, it was really, really interesting. What would happen is, is the high priest would go up, grab the pitcher, and then thousands of people would gather around him for this last march down to the pool of Siloam. And as they marched down to the pool of Siloam, they would sing and they would dance and they would sing songs like Psalm 118, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. And then they would scream at the top of their lungs, oh Lord, save us, which is the word Hosanna. He would fill the pitcher up and then he would march back up to the temple and they would all sing and dance and then he would get to the temple and it would get very, very silent and he would begin to pour out the water in front of them and they would quote from Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Salvation, the Hebrew word Yeshua, the root for the name Jesus. And in that very moment, as the high priest is pouring out that water, Jesus stands up in the midst of thousands of people and causes a scene. Look at what he does, John 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now picture that moment. Don't miss how controversial that would have been. Here's thousands of people praying in unison for the coming of the Christ, praying together, together that God would send somebody to deliver them. And Jesus stands up in front of all of them and says, it's me. It's me, you're looking at him. I can quench your thirst because I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one you're praying for right now. I'm life, I'm water in the midst of your desert place. That's a brave thing to do. See, I would not try to give you a, a better takeaway or application today than Jesus would have given you. It goes like this, are you thirsty? Then come to him and drink. What does that mean? Well, the bottom line means believe in him. Place your faith in him. We are all building our life on something. We all have faith in someone or something. We're all trusting that someone or something's gonna show up. 
and is worth building our life on. It means believing God is who he says he is and will do everything he's ever promised to do. And Jesus said all that, not me. Jesus said he's the place to be satisfied. Jesus said he's the place to find life. Jesus said he's the only way to be connected with God. He said it. Which means we're kind of forced to deal with that at some point in our life, aren't we? At some point we've got to decide what we believe to be true about Jesus. And more importantly, do we believe in him? Do we have faith in him? C.S. Lewis famously said it this way. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. In other words, it's a cop out to say, what do you think about Jesus? Well, he's a great teacher. You can't say that. Why? Because he said he's God. And if you're not God and you say that, well, then you're a lunatic. Look at what he says. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. In other words, he's manipulating people and taking advantage of people. You must make your choice. Either this man Jesus was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He didn't leave that open to us and he didn't intend to. It's been famously summed up this way. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Jesus knows how thirsty you are. And in your thirst, Jesus would not be so cruel and unkind as to point you to anyone but himself to satisfy your thirst, which sounds really, really arrogant unless it's true. If it's true, then it's the most kind and loving thing Jesus could ever do for us. See, God's kindness expressed in the fact that he sent his one and only son to die for us on our behalf is supposed to have an effect on us. Romans 2.4 says it this way, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? That truth comes out over and over again in Scripture. The point of God's grace that he would send his one and only son to die for us while we were busy screwing up our lives, doing everything wrong and working against him, should not inspire us to continue to screw up our lives, do everything wrong, and continue to work against him. It should instead inspire us to come to the man, the person who gave us amazing grace, and offer our lives to him, to, in a word, repent. And I know it's a religious word, but it's a good word. Sometimes it's misused, but here's what it simply means. To repent means to turn away from everything that's destroying your life, your sin, and to turn away from that and to turn towards God in obedience. See, repentance is the evidence that we really do have faith. So the question is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Well, then believe in him and repent. Another way of saying it would be simply to say this, quit digging your own well and wondering why you're thirsty again tomorrow. Quit drinking all the wrong stuff and wondering why you're so dehydrated. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Believe him enough to obey what his word tells you to do. You know, this idea of living water, it's found all over the Bible. We've, we've surfed through a bunch of those scriptures today, but it's highly concentrated at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation specifically, at the end of the book of Revelation. And because so many people read the book of Revelation with a, a fine-tooth comb, trying to figure out every metaphor and, and all the symbolism and try to sell books with it and stuff like that, they fail to step back and see the big picture that's being painted for us. And the big picture is of heaven. 
See, John, the last living original disciple of Jesus, was privileged to have this miraculous vision that God gave him of what heaven was going to look like, and he was told to write it down. And so that's what we have in Revelation. Look at this in chapter 7. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Then Revelation 21, I love this scripture. Look at this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So here's what's going on, all right? He sees this glimpse of heaven and it's unimaginable. It's impossible to describe it in human terms. He's going, how can I help people understand how beautiful this thing is that I'm seeing right now? And the only thing he can think of that gets us in the ballpark of how beautiful it is is to compare it to this moment where there's a dude standing in front of a bunch of people and he's in an uncomfortable suit or tuxedo and the doors in the back of the building open up and everybody stands and everybody turns and everybody looks and there's his bride and she is beautiful and she's walking towards him that's a good thing and that's what he compares it to and he says this and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's a good thing. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega. That means the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And then it ends in chapter 22 with an invitation. An invitation to people who aren't followers of Jesus to repent, to quit digging your own well and to come and drink from the spring of water of life. An invitation to those of us who do follow Jesus, who feel like he's abandoned us or turned away from us to once again put our hope in him. And it goes like this. Whoever's thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. See, there's this old story in the Old Testament those Hebrew slaves that we studied so much about earlier this summer, they're wandering in the desert and they're desperately thirsty and they're begging and they're pleading and they're whining and they're complaining and God tells Moses, their leader, their deliverer, to strike this rock and when he does, water flows out of this rock and their thirst is quenched. In a lot of ways, Jesus is like that rock that had to be struck so that you and I could be satisfied, so that our thirst to be quenched because he was crucified he was beaten and he was bruised his body was broken and his blood was poured out for you and me we're going to take some time now to remember that and to treasure that and to be thankful for that we're going to take some time now to express our thanks that we can come and take the free gift of the water of life doesn't matter what you've done. You may be weak. You may be weary. You may feel like you've gone too far. You may feel like you're not the kind of person that Jesus came for. You're not the kind of person that Jesus died for. And you're not the kind of person that Jesus rose from the grave for. And you'd be wrong. You're exactly the person that Jesus came for. You are the kind of person that he died for. And you are the kind of person that he rose from the grave for. And he'll lead you 
and he'll sustain you in this life because he's living water. And the question becomes, will you follow him? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are so thirsty. And we've tried to find satisfaction and we've tried to have that thirst quenched in so many ways. We have, we have dug our own wells repeatedly in our life and come up empty time and time again. And it's in you and only you, Father, that we find joy and peace and satisfaction. And God, sometimes in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our circumstances, it feels like you've left us behind, like you've abandoned us, like you've turned our, your back on us. And we wonder if you still love us. But God, help us to look to the cross whenever we struggle with that. If there was ever a question of how much you loved us, you answered it resoundingly when you sent your son to die on a cross on our behalf for our sins so that we could have life with you forever. Right now, we want to remember and be thankful, Father, that your son conquered sin and death for us. To the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name, amen.